From the Heritage Foundation, this is Heritage Explains. There's an old story that for his 13th birthday in 1876, Henry Ford was given a pocket watch. Most young boys would have proudly worn and used such a gift. But young Henry got some tools and took it apart. He wanted to know how it worked. It's little wonder then that Henry Ford, many years later, revolutionized car manufacturing in the United States and is still celebrated as one of his century's most important figures. Whether it's true or not, the story about the watch illustrates a thread that is part of our cultural heritage as Americans. Curiosity, innovation, and entrepreneurship. The many amenities that make our lives so much easier and comfortable. Jetliners, medical treatments, air conditioning, the internet. These things were created by people putting their skill and ingenuity to work, sometimes with obsessive energy. And yet, in our cultural moment, there is a suspicion towards the financial success that such innovation brings. Some see wealth as evidence of exploitation and nothing more. They see the free market itself as oppressive. Here at the Heritage Foundation, we do not see it that way. Today on Heritage Explains, we bring you a very special conversation. You may remember Richard Stern, director of the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget here at the Heritage Foundation, who has become a somewhat frequent voice on our show. He sat down with Andy Puzder, American attorney, author, and businessman, who's the former CEO of CKE Restaurants, the parent company of Hardee's and Carl's Jr. Take a listen to this conversation on entrepreneurship, what it means, and why it matters for America. Welcome today, of course, uh, to Heritage Explains. We're going to be delving into the concept of wealth and innovation and the link between the two of them. So, you know, we know that these are two things that are kind of ignored or much maligned in today's society. Innovation is something that a lot of people take for granted, and wealth is something that increasingly a lot of people malign and view as a bad thing. We're here today to talk about the positive influence of both and the inexorable link between the two of them, that wealth is not merely gold bars or cash. It's real productive capital. It's factory equipment. It's offices. It's the things we use to make the goods and services that enrich our lives and free our time to focus on the other things in life that we care about. So I, I'm, I'm joined here today by Andy Puzder, who's, of course, been one of those great American uh, industrialists who's led to real corporations, given jobs to people, and has helped produce those goods and services that have enriched our lives. So, you know, we're going to talk today to go through a lot of these concepts, go through his story as well. And so it's, it's an honor to have you on today, sir. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, so I think to kind of start off with uh, off the bat, I want to ask you in your opinion – what is wealth? How does it benefit society? And, you know, what are the things that it's not that the left likes to claim wealth is? Uh, you know, I like to think of wealth as, as elevating all of society. You know, we've got we've got an, an incredible history in this country 
of lifting people out of extreme poverty at the same time we create great wealth. In fact, in 2015, Barack Obama, speaking at Georgetown University, commented that the free enterprise system was not only the greatest creator of wealth in history, but it lifted billions of people out of poverty. And if you go back to 1820, which is about the time our economy really started to get going, you'll see that about 90% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty. Today, that number is down to about 8%. It was it was around 8% prior to the pandemic. I think it's gotten back there. It was maybe up to 9%. But we've gone from, over, from 90%, and if you include regular poverty, it would have been 94%. We've gone from 94% of people living in poverty to 8 or 9%. And that, that's all been due to the wealth creation that came about through the innovations and progress we've made with our free market capitalist system. So I like to think about wealth as lifting people out of poverty, uh, it, but it, it does involve more than just dollars. Uh, you might think of your iPhone as wealth. You can do things on your iPhone that even billionaires couldn't have done 10, 15, 20 years ago, now people take for granted and, and can do commonly. Or Amazon, the greatest delivery system in the history of the world. It made Jeff Bezos incredibly wealthy. But think about all the benefits that the rest of us have derived from that incredible innovation. Things that, again, only billionaires could have expected door-to-door service or ordering from home or viewing products from your home, having them delivered to the front door and then just return them at your whim. These are the kinds of innovations that improve people's lives and make a big difference. And they, they do go along with wealth creation. No, I think that's a beautiful story there. And I think that's one of the important things to remember is that you're absolutely right. We used to live in a world filled with poverty, with oppression. And the through you're right, the free market system, the American system, we've seen an end largely to that kind of poverty. And I remember there's a, a I think it's a Foundation for Economic Education article I read years ago that basically posed the question, are you wealthier than John D. Rockefeller? And it goes to exactly what you're talking about. It says, in essence, if you had an infinite amount of money, in 1920, what could you do with it? And walk through all the things you're talking about, the modern conveniences that phones give us in our technology that just simply didn't exist at any level there. So I want to ask you kind of the next question that is, what is it about innovators that, that wealth matters so much to their process? How is it that wealth is necessary to facilitate their genius and bring in their visions and dreams into material manifestation in a way that does all of those wonders you're talking about and benefits all of society? Well, I think you you end up with this. You do end up with incredible wealth. I want to say that Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, Henry Ford, Elon Musk, these people have incredible wealth, but they don't have incredible wealth because they stole from us. They have incredible wealth because they provided us with tremendous benefits. So you really in a free market economy like we have, you benefit personally to the extent that you benefit others. Henry Ford and coming up with cars for the common man and the common woman. He didn't he didn't try and create cars for kings, queens and nobility. He tried to create cars for the common man and common woman because he could improve his life by improving their lives. And having done so, he became extremely wealthy. But there was broad based wealth across our economy. I mean, my grandfather, he came over from what the Austro-Hungarian Empire now would be Slovakia back in the early part of the 1900s. And I don't know how he got to the ship that brought him here, but probably was he walked or it was a donkey. By 19, and he arrived in 1912. By 1920, he owned his own Model T. He had a car where he could drive and go anywhere he wanted to go with comparable luxury compared to the way that he was traveling before. The way that, that the reason that these innovators 
come up with these ideas is something that's essential to free market capitalism, which is the profit motive. The idea that you can improve your life through your own efforts, that that really is the heart and soul of free market capitalism. And because the way you improve your life is by meeting the needs of other people, we see people become tremendously wealthy by providing tremendous benefits to other people. But everybody benefits. Like I said, these people don't become wealthy as you become wealthy in Venezuela, North Korea or the former Soviet Union because you steal from somebody. You're taking wealth from people. You become wealthy because you create wealth for other people. And the real beauty of that system is that all of the power to determine the direction of the economy, what products succeed, what products fail, all of that power lies with consumers, it lies with the people. So when, when innovators are trying to improve their lives through their own efforts, they have to meet the needs of consumers who hold the economic power. They're the ones who determine whether the innovations they come up with, the businesses they create, will succeed or fail. Capitalism really is about power to the people, unlike socialism, which is about power over people. This is about power to the people. People control what innovations, what businesses succeed or fail. The people that create them want to benefit consumers because they have the power to make those decisions. So you end up with people creating wealth for themselves by benefiting other people. It's really a pretty, it's a pretty darn good system. <laughs> it's created more wealth than any system in the history of humankind and lifted more people out of poverty. I think that's a beautiful nail to hit the head on, which is that you're absolutely right. There's only one way for wealth to ultimately be generated, and it's by producing real things that matter for people. And I think we see this all the time, of course, where yeah, somebody has to make the economic coordination decisions. It's either, as you said, households, families, consumers, putting their voice out, voting with their money, businesses meeting that, or it's the government and a bunch of bureaucrats making that decision for people. So, you know, and I think this gets to another thing that part of part of what I care about and we talk about here at Heritage is there's a lot of people that have tried making the case that wealth is at odds with the interests of workers and families, that innovation, that this process you're talking about, they try to muddy it, they try to pull out all of these good things you're talking about and somehow say that it comes through worker exploitation, that it comes at the expense of workers and the families. And so I want to give you time to kind of drill down on why that's wrong and why it's such a dangerous lie that's spread to, to try to pit wealth and workers at odds with each other. Well, I think the the incredible energy that comes from what we've been discussing, this free market economy, uh, comes from people having the ability and the opportunity to improve their lives through helping other people. And it, it, it doesn't just apply to Henry Ford and Jeff Bezos, it, but it applies to the guy who, or the gal who runs your local pizza joint or your hamburger joint. They benefit to the extent they provide these benefits uh, to other people. When you run a business, you, <laughs> you don't succeed as a business owner by exploiting your workers. That, that's not a path to success, particularly in today's world. Your workers, the employees of your company, of your business, are your most valuable asset. They're the most important thing to your business. If you don't treat your employees well, they will go and work for somebody else. They'll go work for one of your competitors, or they won't be as productive on the job as you want them to be. Now, there's a balance with any business because to survive, to provide jobs to people, businesses have to make a profit. They have to generate 
more revenue than the cost it takes to run the business. And the if your labor costs get too high, if the benefits you pay to your employees are too high, you're, you will go out of business and not only will you not have a functioning operation, a, a profitable operation, but your employees won't have jobs. So th- this isn't to pit employers against employees, I think it is a false reality. I mean, it's something that I think labor unions and government try and do extensively, mostly to get power, not because they actually want to help anybody, but to try and get power for themselves. Because that the you as an employer, as someone who runs a business, the last thing in the world you want to do is have your employees believe that they are being oppressed or feel oppressed uh, rather than feeling part of a team or part of somebody, part of a group that's actually trying to accomplish a positive goal and move forward. And I think that's such an important note to put forward, that kind of cooperative model between employers and their workers, between investors and the employees of a company, that really, as you said, that beautiful free market system is really the truly cooperative system, as opposed to forced coercion, the way that you go with socialism, or any kind of government top-down approach. So I guess I want to ask you next, then, you know, what are the things that you think the government is doing, the kind of, and, and frankly, the left-wing propaganda that's interfering in this process, that's making it harder for innovators, that's making it hard to have wealth accumulation, that's slowing down this kind of great engine that you talked about from America that that really has led the world to prosperity? There's a number of things. The government's gotten far too large. There's this huge regulatory apparatus that employs really tens of thousands of people in government who believe their job is to regulate businesses, to regulate how we run our lives. Now, these the people that are that advocate for these socialist or collectivist economic systems really believe they can run our lives better than we can, and that that's a huge mistake. And this regulatory apparatus that's really growing exponentially under President Obama, then Trump took it down, and now President Biden's building it back up again, is a big detriment to uh, businesses moving forward. That's one. The second is the government spending this tremendous amount of money that it spends out there on, and in many cases, I think very wastefully. But when the government spends money, and, and the government has to borrow to spend money, so it's borrowing these monies. There's actually these auctions where they sell bonds. I don't think people think of it this way, but there's actually these auctions where people have to come in. They have to want to buy the government's bonds. The people are buying, if they're investing in government growth, they're not investing in private sector growth. So when the government spends a tremendous amount of money, it really sucks. It sucks capital out of the private sector. And when the private sector is capital restrained or constrained, then it can't grow as it should grow. The government also is involving itself in far, far too many decisions as to the direction the economy should take. Adam Smith called consumers driving the economy the invisible hand. And it's all in what he was referring to is almost like artificial intelligence. It's really millions and millions of people making decisions every day as to what goods or services, what products people want and what products should drive the economy. If you think, to give you an example, a hypothetical example, if you go back to the you know, the early 2000s, the late 1990s, the big phone at the time was, was called the BlackBerry. And for young people that don't remember, it was not a smartphone, but it was sure a whole lot smarter than any phones we'd ever had up to that time. It was much, much better than the rotary dial phones. It actually did things. You could view videos. You could do some things on them. 
We weren't to Steve Jobs' smartphones yet, but it was an innovation. When the app, when Apple came out with the iPhone, there really was a big competition between BlackBerry and iPhone. And older people who had become used to the BlackBerry really preferred it initially to the iPhone, which some people even in the business community at the time considered more of a toy, that it really wasn't ever going to be anything real. If cons- consumers, however, were in charge of which phones succeeded, and they went with the smartphones, whether it's the iPhone or the Android, and BlackBerry went on to do some other thing. It's in some other business now. But, and clearly they're not making a lot of Blackberries anymore. If the government had been in charge of this, if this had been run by by older gray-haired men and women making decisions as to whether we should go with Blackberries or iPhones, I think we might still be using the BlackBerry. The government just isn't very good at these kinds of decisions. The government, governments really are terrible at it. If you look, again, look at the Soviet Union or Cuba or Venezuela, even China now. China, as it becomes more restrictive, as it restricts the free enterprise system, you're losing the kind of innovation, you're losing the kind of market energy you get from consumers driving an economy as opposed to government driving an economy. And in in the current day and age, to bring it back to your question now, uh, we're seeing this with electric vehicles. The consumers just don't want them, despite all of the money, the the billions and billions of dollars that are poured into this. The subsidies, the, the encouragement of the auto sector to build these things, the encouragement of people to buy them, people don't want them. They're piling up in, in storage lots. I think they're under 10%. After all of this promotion, they're still under 10% of the vehicles that are purchased. And it's because the government really isn't very good at determining what goods or services people are going to want and what's going to end up driving the economy. And in this case, I think they've made a huge mistake. Ford loses, I, I was reading today, the Ford loses $62,000 on every electric vehicle it sells. They don't even cost $62,000. This is a tremendously terrible decision that is driving our economy into a ditch. We're really going in the wrong direction on a number of these things. Electric vehicles, I think, probably the best example. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't a role for electric vehicles. I think Tesla's a great company. I think Elon Musk is is a great innovator and entrepreneur. And there may be a market for electric companies, but you're going to have to let it be a consumer-driven market because a government-driven market doesn't work. Ask the the leaders of the now non-existent Soviet Union. They tried this for 70 years. It didn't work. So I think the government is really doing many things that are impeding our economic progress and our ability to lift people out of poverty and create wealth. I I, I think to your point, you know, North Korea, I'm told, is a hotbed of innovation, right? If you want to see, you know, you want to see the kind of innovations that government bureaucrats decide on, the BlackBerry might even be generous to what they'd allow us with if you just had that kind of system, right? Uh, You know, and I think you bring up, of course, an an amazing point, you know, so, so I run, of course, our spending and tax policy center here at Heritage, and you're absolutely right. Every single dollar the government spends comes out of American households. It comes out through taxes. It comes out through inflation taxes or the kind of crowding out you're talking about where, you know, as you said, you're, you know, the government's sucking the oxygen out of the room. And so instead of the individual people who have those passions and skills where genius lives to make those new products, you're stealing it from them. And, and really, you know, as you're bringing out, stealing it from all of our futures as well. All of that innovation that, you know, I think the most tragic thing is we'll never know it didn't come into being. And so, you know, and I think that's a lot of, you know, our purpose here, of course, is to highlight that to make sure people know about that. You know, what I often tell people is you look at the satellite photos of North and South Korea. One is 
dark, oppressive. The other is beautiful, wealthy, filled with light. That's precisely right. That's the difference over 70 years of that. And so, you know, you and I, I think, would both say, I can't tell you what the next innovation is going to be, but I can tell you that if you commit for three, four generations to the bad policies or the kind of beautiful policies you're talking about, that's what the difference is. You know, and, and we've seen that. I mean, you and I could sit here for hours and go through things from the light bulb, the smartphones, to the internet, all of those amazing innovations that people have made an enormous amount have come out of the United States precisely because of the environment you're talking about that have benefited us in every way imaginable. So, you know, I want to ask you as well, you know, you've done this. You've led a business. You've led Carl's Jr. and Hardee's. And I want to ask you kind of what was in the secret sauce of their success, of how you did things? You know, I think tragically a lot of people think that the people that run businesses just kind of sit in an office and don't really do anything. They they don't understand how much real work is involved in putting these together and in funding the right thing. So I want to hear a little bit of your story and kind of – you know, what yeah, lessons I, I, you I'd from almost that. like to stick with the North Korea thing for a second, if you don't mind, and then go into that. Of course, creation and innovation. I think it's. It, I think one way that people can understand what's really going on here is to think about your local grocery store. When this is every product on the shelves represents an entrepreneur, and the the store itself represents an entrepreneur. Somebody who thought they could make a living, they could improve other people's lives and their lives by opening a grocery store. The difference is, let's take North Korea for example, where people wait in food lines. This is it's a country that's starving. It's literally starving. And people are in line waiting for food. When you're in that line waiting for food in North Korea, there's two things you could think. One thing is I can improve everybody's life in this line and mine if I figured a way to get food to these people. And everybody would be thinking that. How can we feed people and improve our lives and their lives? Because the system suppresses that. The system doesn't allow you to think, how can I improve the lives of the people in these lines? The only thought you have is, how can I get the most for myself when I get to the end of the line? In other words, when I get to the end of the line, how do I get the most bread for me? Not how do I feed the rest of the people in this line, which is really what suppresses the energy and why you have literally in every socialist country, you end up with these bread lines because there's never enough food to feed everybody. Now, the way that you get more food when you get to the end of the line is you satisfy the people in power. The people in power aren't the consumers. They're not like here where you're trying to satisfy the people in the line. The people you have to satisfy are the political leaders like Kim Jong-un. And so while Kim Jong-un has a, a country where you know children are starving, if you get a picture of him in his mind, your mind, he's obviously not missed a meal recently. He's the guy who is getting the benefits of the system that's in place, which is what, which is why you end up with no innovation. Now, onto your other question about running a business, you know, the first thing you, you have to do when you get into a business, and this again goes back to consumers are in, in, in control, is you have to figure out what is the demand for your product? Who is the market? Who are the people that you need to market your product to? And then how can you convince them that you have what they want at a price they can afford. And that's a factor of how inexpensively, what do you have to spend to produce the product? And if it's a high-end product, maybe you have to spend a lot. What's the labor that goes into that? If you've got restaurants, you have to look at the rent uh, that you pay for these restaurants. You have to look at all of the expense you incur, particularly in a state like California, where the government is so predominant and, and is so involved in every aspect of business. You have to look at what the expenses the government's going to impose on your business are. And then you have to try and balance all that out so that you can provide that product 
to people at the best price and still walk away with a profitable business. And it, it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's an involved process. It's, I, I make it sound fairly simple, but it's, it's something that, that takes a lot of work and a lot of research. Well, you know, at the end of the day, when a juggler is doing their job well, it looks beautiful, seamless, right? The flow, you know, looks immaculate. But to your point, there's a lot of things you're juggling, a lot of things you're looking at, a lot of information you're trying to pull together to understand what works, what innovation is, what you can produce, what consumers want. The more we're talking about this, the thing that struck me about this is in many ways, you can think of wealth, I think, not just as access to stuff and not just, of course, that it's very good. But you can think of wealth, tell me if you disagree, but I, I think you can think of wealth as being a capture of all of the work you've done to benefit other people, all the things you've built that make society better. So your example of not just thinking about how do I get my own food, but how do I get more food to the rest of the people in these lines? Yes, that's exactly right. In a free market economy, your wealth is a reflection of the extent to which you've benefited other people. Now, people will, you know, people that are opposed to that system will say, well, no, there's there's robbery, there's thieves, there's people. Steal. Well, look, uh, those things are illegal. Those, are, those are, That's not the heart of the system. The heart of the system isn't people stealing out there. That's not the motivation as it is in collectivist economic systems where you really are trying to take advantage of other people and in, in effect stealing from them. The motivation in the free market system is that you're benefiting consumers. And if you do honestly and you do with with an intention to provide the greatest benefit to the greatest number of people, you will be extremely successful and your wealth will reflect the extent to which you've been able to benefit other people. It's, you know, really, they talk about capitalism being based on greed. It's, it's, this is really more altruistic than greedy. You're, you improve your life by improving other people's lives. I mean, that's kind of altruism. It's not really greed. Absolutely. I always think back, and, and your story, of course, reminded me as well, as the photos of that first McDonald's opening, I think in 91, in Moscow, where you had lines many, many blocks long, right? And to your point, these are all people who wanted this, who wanted good, safe, reliable, tasty food at affordable prices. And there was no market for it in the Soviet Union, right? There was no ability for people to have that vision to say, this is something that people want that can benefit people. And so I think it's such an interesting thing. In this country, you take it for granted. There's a McDonald's on almost every street corner, right? But to them in, in the Soviet Union, that first McDonald's in Moscow represented such an, a mammoth uh, increase in access to things. And I think you're right. You know, So the, the way that I think of the capitalist system often is, and very much what you're talking about Adam Smith and the invisible hand, is it's that process of how we coordinate in a voluntary way to be altruistic, to follow our passions, to do the things that we're call- we feel called to, that we're good about, the things that, that benefit other people, that we each have a unique comparative advantage, a unique talent and fulfilling. I, I, I'm curious, I want to ask you, we talked a little bit about Hayek before we got the, the show rolling here. And one of the things that that really always impacted me about this was his view of the idea of price signals, something that a lot of people ignore, they think is part of the screwy kind of part of business. But he viewed price signals as conveying knowledge, real and valuable information between people, and that transaction price of a product reflects all of this real meaning and value to coordinate these actions. So I, I want to ask you about that and how you feel about that kind of structure of the market. Hayek was a genius. He gets far less credit for um, uh, for how for how 
uh, economically secure people are today than he deserves. Uh, and I think other people who demean that economic security get more credit. I think we hear a lot about, about Keynes and about Keynesian economics, which has been nothing but a disaster, but seems to be the guiding principle for one particular political party. Look, pri- the prices are, set, are are really kind of a wonderful thing. I mean, you it, it really is a bargain between two people that uh, I can offer you something at a particular price. And and you have to actually agree that it it's worth it is worth to you the price you have to pay for it. So every time there's a transaction that's non-compulsory, it's a person agreeing that something they're buying is worth what they have to pay, and a person who actually makes some kind of profit from the sale agreeing that this is a price at which he's willing to sell the product. So it's it's a very democratic, fair exchange. It's something that I think has motivated businesses across the across the spectrum to try and work with people to try and figure out what it is they want and how they can be offered at a price that the person can afford. Now, you know, and I think, you know, at a time right now in politics where people are concerned with morality or concerned with what we are as a society and what justice is, I think this is all a beautiful kind of capture of what people do when you give them freedom, right? That they work together in these voluntary ways to do things that are good, that tend towards the beautiful things in life, that tend towards building communities, not regulating against them, not destroying them. And so I want to ask you as well, obviously, a lot of people are concerned about making sure that consumers are protected within the market system. And I want to get your thoughts a little bit as well on how these markets organically work together, as you've been talking about, to protect consumers, to protect workers, to put forward those values that we hold dear as society as well. Maybe oil prices are currently the best example, which is if when oil prices go up, people make a conscious decision to, to drive less, to heat less, maybe to be more conscientious about where they set the temperature on their thermometer at home, either increasing or decreasing the demand for that particular product, in this case, oil or heating fuel. And the market will adjust to that as demand goes up or down the market will adjust prices to reflect the fact that they've got too much oil because people aren't buying it, or they have too little oil because people are demanding. The demand for a product has increased. And this, again, you can get back into the influence of the government in this scenario. When President Biden took office and said he was going to put fossil fuel companies out of business and he was going to cut back on oil production, the market anticipated that there would be less oil. And even if there weren't less oil at the time, because these policies take you know, pol- policies on energy can take 10 years to actually come into effect. You're generally dealing with the uh, policies of your predecessor when you're looking at uh, things like oil production. But, e- but even just the anticipation that the United States was going to be producing less oil drove the price of oil up. And in fact, today, if Joe Biden stood on the steps of the White House and said, Uh, We're going to be ramping up production. We're going to remove all the obstacles to oil production in the United States. We're going to make sure that our companies are secure and we're going to build pipelines and we're going to encourage them to to drill wells or we're going to grant leases on land to drill oil wells. The price before any of that took place, the price of oil would come down because the anticipation in the market would be that we were going to have more oil. And when you anticipate having more of a product that people want, the price will go down. If you anticipation is you have less of a product that people want, the price will go up. The most basic lesson in economics, I think, even in high school and junior high is supply and demand, the rules of supply and demand. 
And I wish the government would pay a little more attention to them. Yeah, absolutely. The, the way I always think of it is the most scarce resource we have is time. And so, you know, when the government does these things so that we get less material output for each hour of work we have to do, where we have to work multiple jobs just to be able to afford these basic necessities you're talking about, it means that we also have less time to spend in our communities with our families, less time to spend pursuing the things that we care about in life. And so I think part of the story you're talking about as well, the way I always think about it is, it's about both of these things, right? It's about making sure that people have access to all the material goods that they want and that they can spend their time how they want, not just having to, to slave away because the government regulates them into oblivion and poverty. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, it's interesting. When you think about the potential of people and and how productive they can be, what they can do with their time. I ran the company CK Restaurants. It was started by a a guy with an eighth grade education named Carl Karcher who bought a hot dog cart in 1941. He had to leave uh, his home in northern Ohio because uh, it was the Depression. There were eight kids in the family. He was 6'4", weighed about 200 pounds. I don't think they could feed him. I think he had to go to California so he could make it on his own. And he was able to turn that hot dog cart. By the time I met him, he had a half a billion dollar public company that he had created with the Carl's Jr. restaurant brand in California. Now, Luckily, Carl lived in a country where he, you could do that. A guy with an eighth grade education and, and some determination could actually accomplish those kinds of goals and take his desire to, in this case, feed people, though he loved opening restaurants, he loved talking to the customers, he loved the, you know, the, the sort of the workings of the business. And, and he was able to produce a company that's really employed probably since 1941, millions of people. Uh, some people have uh, used the jobs to pay for college. Others have gotten good, secure jobs in the restaurant industry or taken the training. They had to move on to other things. But Carl was able to take his entrepreneurial spirit and create jobs, wealth and prosperity, not only for himself, but for others. And it's And it's important to understand the impact of that because People, it seems people on the left are consistently trying to turn the American business community into, uh, you know, some kind of religion or, or something that will advance social and political issues as opposed to simply producing the wealth and prosperity that allows people to succeed. And I think it's important to understand that while businesses are great engines of productivity, of economic productivity. Societies do need more, and we need more than wealth to be a well-adjusted, happy society. You need, this is why well-adjusted societies have strong families, strong religious institutions, flourishing arts, and other agencies through which people can find things like love, inspiration, moral clarity, emotional stability. Businesses can't be the primary pr- uh, vehicles or primary agencies through which people meet those needs. What businesses can do is create the wealth that reduces poverty, as we've discussed, that creates prosperity, but it also creates the wealth so that society can address the needs of people that that remain in poverty, that, that it can address the needs of people who need assistance. You can't do that in a poor society. You can only do that in a society that has adequate wealth. So I think we re- what we really see on the left is an attempt to reorient modern American businesses, reorient the private sector to meeting these other goals, these I don't know, environmental goals, social justice goals, other goals that really aren't pertinent to what businesses can effectively do 
which is create the wealth that allows that allows a society to function in a healthy manner for families to function in a healthy manner for people to live their lives and have the wealth to help others who really can't help themselves and are in need. So I think we're seeing a kind of a twisting of values in all of this. And it's unfortunate because we're putting at risk the the greatest economic system in the history of humankind. And as President Obama noted, no, I, I think that's a beautiful kind of a capture of exactly what's going on and the gravity of the situation. I, I, I jokingly refer to what you're talking about as contract socialism, that the left uses the power of government to now contract private businesses to carry out their central planning for them. And in some ways, I think it's it's kind of a return to the medieval European feudalism, right? They're, the left's goal is to have the people that control wealth be these kind of feudal lords who live only off of the favors of the government. And instead of the king, now it's the EPA or the Department of labor, or it's the tax credits and whatever new bill gets done. But it's the same kind of model, right? And I think the story you tell there about how Carl's Jr. got started is one of those truly uniquely American stories where somebody who has, to your point, no education, right, where you'd, you'd look at them and in most of the world, for most of human history, he would have been a subsistence farmer. He would have had no future that way. But it's uniquely here, right, as you said, America is the one country that was devoted in many ways, not just to following God's law, to allowing everyone to have agency and freedom, but to believing that within everybody is that innate talent, that innate ability to do wondrous, beautiful things that benefit everybody. And so I I think you're absolutely right. That's one of the things that's always inspired me about our story as a, as a nation is exactly that. And one of the things that concerns me now, of course, is I don't know if he could have done that again today because of the regulations, because of this new kind of woke capitalist corruption that's going on. Uh, is that dream, that American dream being dimmed now, right? If we maybe move too much over to that kind of old school style of an oppressive government that favors the people they like and keeps everyone trapped under poverty and oppression. Yeah, actually, Carl passed away back in the, it's about 19, let's see, what it would have been, about 2009. And before he died, he told me he didn't think he could do that today. He didn't think he could. In fact, I had to take the business. I moved the CKE restaurants out of California. We moved it to Nashville, Tennessee, because I didn't think that we could function in California any longer. You've really seen the government doing everything it possibly can to destroy the opportunity for innovation, the opportunity for people to lift themselves up by their own bootstraps like Horatio Algiers and to make a difference in the world and to pass on the, the benefits of, of their entrepreneurial spirit, their wisdom to others. As you said, if, if Carl hadn't lived in a country that offered the kind of opportunities the United States did at that point in time, he would have died a, an impoverished farmer on the southern coast of Lake Erie rather than creating the kind of jobs and prosperity he was able to create across the country and for many, many people. Carl's just one one person. I mean, there have been thousands and thousands of Americans who have done the same of all races, of all of both sexes and of all religious affiliation. This is a country where you can do that. And it makes a difference. And to the extent that the government tries to restrict that, we're back to the comment you made earlier about you never know, you'll never know what didn't happen. And I'm afraid that a lot of things that could have happened and should be happening now aren't happening because of the oppressive nature of government. And also, you've you touched on it a little bit, this this kind of environmental social justice movement within the financial sector, big companies like BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, these massive financial firms that are trying to impose social and political leftist social and political goals 
on American, on American companies and have been doing so successfully until the last year or so when we the anti-ESG resistance has, has figured out what they were up to and, it, and is actually making some headroads. And we've actually got Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, back on his heels wondering what hit him. But this is the kind of fight that we need to engage in. This is the fight of our generation, of this generation, I shouldn't say. My generation's fight was communism. I think this generation's fight is uh, ESG investing. Well, and we're definitely lucky to have you as well as as, as a champion on these causes. I, I think if, if the next time everyone goes to vote or next time politicians or regulators think about what laws they're going to pass or new regulations are going to do, if in the back of their mind they're haunted by that question of what is the beautiful, great, innovative thing that won't happen and we'll never know about because of this vote here today or because of this new regulation, if they had that thought in the back of their mind, we'd be better off going forward. So, yes, we would. So let me ask you this. It's, it's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you again for your time, of course. Is there anything else you want to share with our audience today on, on this topic? Oh, well, I think we, we've really covered, I, really, I think we've covered most of it. I would say the next election is important. There's a lot at stake. I think we hear this every election, and I think the last couple, it's been, it's been particularly true. But we're at a precipice. Our economy is collapsing. Our reputation internationally is collapsing. Our border is collapsing. We don't know yet who the nominees are going to be for each of the parties. But if you please be careful not to elect someone that will continue the policies we currently have in effect because we are heading down the drain and we're going to lose. In this generation, we could lose really the greatest nation that's ever existed in the history of the world. And I'd hate to see that happen in my lifetime. So be careful how you vote. A clarion call for wisdom, of course. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time as well and for delving into this conversation here for our audience about the true value of wealth and innovation and the link between them and how it benefits all of society and gives us all of the modern conveniences we have. So thank you again. And thank you, everybody, for listening today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to Richard Stern and Andy Puzder for their contributions to this episode. You can find more of Richard's work at heritage.org, and you can follow him on X at Rich A. Stern. You can find more from Andy on his website, andy.puzder.com, as well as on X at Andy Puzder. We'd also like to thank Paul Mullen and Genevieve Wood for arranging this conversation for us. And lastly, thank you to you for listening to Heritage Explains. If you have any thoughts, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, send them our way at heritageexplains at heritage.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It's written and produced by Mark Gani, Lauren Evans, and John Pop.